Yes, 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 yes. Venture, it is great to see you today. If you're not, if you weren't in a holiday Christmas mood yet, I bet you are now. Did you see it this past week? As you looked around you everywhere you went, did you see the cosmic story that God has been and still is telling? He wants to tell it in you and through you as well. We've been talking about this. Uh, We kicked off a brand new sermon series last week. It's called The Greatest Story Ever Told. And I, for one, spent some time this past week thinking about that. I... uh, There it is, the greatest story ever told. I was uh, Thursday night. Dawn and I had made plans to join a couple from here at Venture for dinner at Clay Terrace. If you're joining us online today, first of all, it's great to have you join us online. Maybe you're from a distance away. We've got this great outdoor mall just a couple miles down the road here called Clay Terrace. And we were going to have dinner there. And on the way to that location, I stopped by a hospice care facility. Those of you who know the medical community or maybe you've had a loved one that has gone through hospice, you know exactly what that means. End of life is approaching. And I met with uh, somebody who this is their church home and she's staring at eternity. And I don't know, God's sovereign, but I think this is true. I I think she's going to step into her eternity before I do. And it was a sweet time of kind of sitting there with her and holding her hand. We prayed together. We read some scripture together. Her sister was there. We had some laughter. We had some tears. So eternity was on my mind. The greatest story ever told and how God has redeemed and is redeeming the world. This is what was rolling through my brain as I drove from there to Clay Terrace. And I got there a little bit early and and our our dinner wasn't for another uh, probably 20 minutes or so. And so I had some time to kill. I just took a lap. And walked around, looked at the beautiful lights and walked into a couple of stores. I'm not a big shopper, but I was in some of these stores watching people do their Christmas shopping and the busyness and the hubbub. And I had this thought. How many of these people who are busy buying presents right now, how many of them connect that with, we talked about this last week, The wise men showed up at the manger scene. And the reason why we buy presents for our loved ones now is because they modeled that by buying presents or bringing presents for the newborn baby Jesus then. And I just kind of stopped and I looked around and I thought, how many people that I'm looking at right now know that this busyness of this season, well, it has its beginnings. It has its roots. It has its foundations in the greatest story ever told. Our job is to let the world know that Emmanuel, God with us. We just sang about him in that great song. Emmanuel, Jesus. God used a baby in a manger to redeem the world then, and he still does today. Let's catch up. The greatest story ever told last week, we talked about the hoodlum. Called him the villain. And this small V villain character in the New Testament, in the manger scene, the greatest story ever told, his name is King Herod. Herod the Great. And he's the man in that story that sought to kill all the babies two years and younger. 
We talked about the villain in Jesus' story, but that's a small V villain. Actually, he's an archetype, or he belongs to a larger connection to a villain. The archetype of the villain is Satan, and we read about him just three chapters into the Bible. But we learn there, and we talked about this last week, that while he's kind of nipping at Jesus' heel, Jesus crushes the serpent's head. Jesus, once and for all at the cross of Christ, wipes out the villain. At least he wipes out his long-term power. He's still nipping at God's people's heels. And the challenge was to make sure that the small v villain in your story, well, you don't get distracted by that. God is in control. And to do battle against the real villain in your story, the arch villain, the arch villain, fight the real villain in your story. This week, uh, we're talking about the history. We're talking about setting. We'll explore that here in a second. Next week, we're going to talk about the heart. Don't miss next week. We're going to be looking at Mary and what she brings to this story. And then, oh, don't miss Christmas Eve. We're going to be looking at the hero of the story, Jesus himself. And as we think about shopping and the people we bump into in the stores, and do we wonder, do they realize that they're part of the greatest story that's ever told? This week, be thinking about be praying about who can you invest in? Who can you invite to come back and be a part of our Christmas Eve celebration? It'll be at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. Christmas Eve, the 24th of December. And we're going to unpack this story, the hero. There's only one hero to the Bible. It's God himself. Who can you buy, invite to be a part of that that week? So a story, we talked about this last week, has five basic but very important components and elements. These five elements are the characters, the setting, the plot, the conflict, and then ultimately the resolution. And these elements keep the story running smoothly and they allow us, the readers or the listeners, or for watching a movie, the watchers, they keep us engaged through the story. We're talking about setting of story today. For our purposes, we're going to draw an equal sign between setting and history. That's going to make sense here in just a minute. Because God uses unlikely people to tell his story. What makes you think he wouldn't use you? What makes you think that that person that you see in the grocery store, or that person, that neighbor across the street, that God wouldn't use you to impact their story? You become a part of their history and impacts them maybe even for generations to come and the cause of Christ for generations to come. The setting is God's. It's his story. The title of the message this week is The History. There's a passage in Scripture that makes me think about this every time I read it. It's in Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 4. If you've got your Bible and you want to go there with me, Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, there's an awful lot in that sentence. In the first century context, this would be the Roman system of governance. When the Roman roads were built and these infrastructure uh, systems that are in place for people like the Apostle Paul and some of the early disciples and apostles to literally travel the Roman roads to impact the world, the far reaches of the globe with the gospel, the good news of Jesus that begins in a manger scene and has its crescendo moment at the cross of Christ. In the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. God said, I'm going to become Emmanuel, 
God with us. I who authored the law, I who created the law, I'm going to place myself under that. Humility. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That's us. That's you. That's me. So that we might receive adoption as sons and as daughters, as kids adopted into God's family. What does the fullness of time mean? Well, God uses those systems that are in place. When the time is just right, he comes to earth. And this idea of adoption as sons and daughters, there's so much in these two verses that we could unpack. I think this is that the world needs a good dad. God's saying, I want you in my family. Today, today we're looking at a model of a good dad. So if you're looking for an outline today, if you're taking notes, here's our outline for the message. First of all, we're going to start with a cute trope. Then we're going to talk about a present. It's Christmas after all. And then we're going to end with a challenge. A trope, a present, a challenge. Let's start with a trope. Do you know what this is? We're talking about stories and literature. Here's the definition of a trope. The phrase, stop and smell the roses. This is a trope. It comes from, uh, the idea of a trope comes from a Greek word, which means to turn or direction or way. So the stop and smell the roses, let's hit the next slide. Tropes are figures of speech that move the meaning of the text from literal to figurative. Stop and smell the roses. It isn't about literally, it's not about just stopping and taking the whiff of a rose. It's about, you know what it means, to stop and smell the roses. Here's the trope. If you're taking notes today, write this down. History is his story. History is his story. That's a cute trope. Maybe too cute. I don't want the meaning to be lost in its cuteness. But the history, the story that God has been telling since the dawn of time, history is literally his story. I've got... uh, a Venn diagram that will emerge through this message and last week and next week as well. We're looking at God's story. He's been telling a story since the dawn of time, and this greatest story ever told is anchored deeply in history, his story. The Bible in the Old Testament tells the story from creation to Jesus. And at that moment, at the fullness of time when it's come, Actually, the New Testament begins with anchoring that manger scene in history. If you've got your Bible and you want to open it up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it anchors the manger scene in history. Matthew 1, verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The original audience would have leaned forward. David, yeah, the good King David, we've heard of him. The son of Abraham, oh yes, he's not literally David's son, but you can trace the lineage from David back to Abraham. Actually, if you wanted to trace it even further back than that, you could go back to some genealogy lists like in Genesis chapter 5, and you could go backwards from Abraham to Adam. Genealogy is an important thing in the Old Testament and in the New Testament alike because it anchors the story, the greatest story ever told. It anchors it in history, God's story. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Then the text goes on. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And some of you, you're, uh, you're thinking, is he going to read this entire list of genealogy? 
No, we're going to skip forward a little bit. Yeah, you have some sons, and then you end up with Judah. You have some sons, and skip ahead to Ram, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Let's pause there just for a second. God's story is history. It is his story. And here's what's so amazing to me about God's story that he tells through the scriptures. There are some stinkers in there. There's, it's a cast of characters Rahab is one of them. Don't whitewash Rahab's story. She's described as a prostitute. God will go to any means necessary to tell his story. He uses her in a powerful way when it's time for God's people to come home to inhabit the promised land, the nation of Israel. And in order to capture the walls of Jericho, well, Rahab plays a pretty significant piece in that story. God will use anybody to tell his story. Let's keep reading. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. The audience went, oh, yeah, good King David. We know him, the greatest king who ever lived. David was the father of Solomon. Oh, the wise king, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Pause again. Notice the language past tense. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why was she no longer Uriah's wife? Well, because good King David had, her, had him killed. Good King David was having an affair with his mother. Don't whitewash that part of the story. God uses broken people even in the telling of history. His story. Let's keep reading. Solomon, the good king, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the father of Rehoboam. Skip ahead some generations to jump in Jehoshaphat to Uzziah. Uzziah had kids, and they had kids, and then you end up with Hezekiah. God used Hezekiah in some amazing ways to prepare God's people for siege warfare. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Hezekiah had commissioned a digging of a tunnel, Iron Age tools inside the wall of Jerusalem. They started on one side, outside the walls of Jerusalem by the Gihon springs, they started digging, and they met in the middle, and it ended up making it to where there can be water inside Jerusalem, even during siege warfare. This is a big deal, because during the Babylonian captivity and the years leading up to that, this needed to happen. Skip ahead to the boy king, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. The key with these is just to read them like you're confident, you know how to pronounce them, because nobody really knows how to pronounce these names. Let's keep reading. At the time of the exiles of Babylon, this is when the music starts to crescendo and it feels a little bit darker. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconi, skip ahead, Zerubbabel, Azor, Eliad, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. That's who we're going to talk about today. Let's keep reading. Joseph is the husband of Mary. This is what we know about Joseph, of whom was born Jesus who is called the Christ. Thus, there are 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Today, we want to look at Joseph, a man used by God, a man who is set in God's story, history. By the way, so are you. Joseph is a supporting cast member. Jesus is the hero. We're going to be looking at him exclusively Christmas Eve. He's the hero of the story. Herod, we looked at him last week, was the villain. Mary gets more press. 
We're going to look at her next week. But Joseph, the strong, silent type, Joseph, he was pretty important to the story. I had a business meeting on Friday, and the guy I was meeting with asked me. He knew I was a preacher. He said, what's your sermon on this week? I told him I'd talk about Joseph. And he said, I wish I knew more about Joseph. Me too. The Bible doesn't go into great detail describing Joseph. What we do know is that Joseph's legacy is Jesus. That's a pretty big legacy. We're going to start. We started with a cute trope. History is his story. We're going to look at a present. It's Christmas, after all. And then I'm going to leave you with a challenge. Here's the present. If you're taking notes, write this down. Your story. Your story is wrapped in his story, in history itself. Your story is wrapped in a larger story that God is telling. This is the present. Joseph. Joseph can claim this. Let's put up our Venn diagram as it's emerging here. God's been telling a story since the dawn of time. You have a story that God is seeking to tell through you. The overlap of those two, God's story, your story, this is a beautiful space to live in right here. And might I suggest to you that Joseph... Joseph, the story that God wanted to tell through his life, where it overlaps with the story that God is telling since the dawn of time, beautiful things come from that, namely Jesus himself. So how did God use Joseph? Well, we have to look underneath the text to see that. Again, there's not a ton mentioned in Scripture about Joseph, but we can assume some things. We can infer some things about Joseph and his leadership and who he was Namely, how God used him. If you skip ahead in the story from the manger scene, the cattle are lowing, that part of the story. If you skip ahead about 12 years. Well, turn there with me if you would. I'm in Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Mary and Joseph have been parenting the baby Jesus now for 12 years And we get a picture, a snapshot into Joseph and maybe even his parenting style. Every year, his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, which this is a big deal for a young Jewish man, he's becoming a man, they went up to the feast. Pause there for a second. If this is a map of the Holy Land, Jerusalem is here. The Nazareth Ridge, the little town of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, it's up here. If you and I, we look at a map, we say, if you're going from here to here, are you going up or are you going down, right? The text says they went down to Jerusalem. What? Well, it's because literally they were going uphill. They were going up in elevation. This is probably when the kids are complaining. They're going downhill when they go from Jerusalem back home, but they're going uphill to go to Jerusalem. I think about my dad and as a kid in the station wagon. My dad had this amazing ability to steer the car and do this as he needed to behind him in the seat getting the kids under control. Joseph is navigating this journey with a wife and other children besides Jesus as well. We're going to look at them in a second. They're going up to the feast. According to the custom, after the feast was over... While his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. They're going home. They're going down, back north. 
Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, mom and dad can't find 12-year-old Jesus for three days. That's scary, right? They found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Notice that Mary is the one doing the talking. Joseph is standing there, the strong, silent type in affirmation of what mom is saying. Your father and I, but she's speaking for him, have been anxiously searching for him. Three days of searching. This gives you an insight into the love and the dedication that Joseph poured into leading his family. Keep reading. Why are you searching for me, Jesus asked. Did you know I had been in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Can you imagine the hurt that Joseph might have felt in that moment? Wait, your father's house. You see, Joseph is his adoptive father. He has a father in heaven. But Joseph is doing, can I say it, some of the heavy lifting here on earth. Some of you who maybe are very involved uncles, you think about your nieces and your nephews or some of you grandparents that are doing some of the heavy lifting of raising your grandkids. You get the potential hurt that Joseph might have felt here. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, again going downhill, heading north, and was obedient to them. This gives you an insight into Jesus. Kids, notice that. Moms and dads, notice that as well. There's some good parenting that's going on here. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. We're going to talk about that next week. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. There's a whole lot happening there in, the question, in, that, in that passage. The question is, how? How did Jesus grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man? Well, of course, he's God. He's got that going for him. But I'm guessing he was parented well on earth as well. We get an insight in this if we go a few verses, actually right before the passage we just read in Luke chapter 2, verse 39. Check this out. This is the context of that story. When Joseph and Mary, Joseph is mentioned by name here, mom and dad, had done everything required by the law of the Lord. They've invested deeply. They've done everything they know to do. They returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. The child that's speaking of here is Jesus. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus had a father in heaven. But Jesus also needed a daddy here on earth. And Joseph provided this very important ministry to Jesus. Joseph is the earthly father of Jesus. And if you're taking notes, you might even want to write this down. Joseph obeyed God in the face of severe humiliation. You see, Joseph was engaged to be married to Mary, and she turned up pregnant. And Joseph knew, I mean, he took biology class, right? He knew she's a virgin. This was not his child. Severely humiliated. Matthew chapter 1 verse 19, look, see what the text says about Joseph. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace as was his right and actually his opportunity to save face. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Don't judge him for this. Actually, that's to his credit. 
He could have, maybe even should have, divorced her very publicly. Actually, according to Jewish law, she could be stoned, killed for that. But he decided to do this quietly. And this is before God told him what was going on. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph or rather God, chose Joseph to be the earthly father of Jesus. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of Matthew that Joseph was a righteous man. His actions toward Mary, his fiancée, reveal that he was a kind and a sensitive man. When Mary told Joseph she was pregnant, he had every right to feel disgraced. He knew the child was not his own, and Mary's apparent unfaithfulness carried a grave social stigma. Joseph not only had the right to divorce Mary, but as I just said, under Jewish law, she could have been put to death by stoning. Here's the question. Since God is omniscient, all-knowing, didn't he know how Joseph would react? God chose Mary for this important task. Arguably, God chose Joseph for this high calling as well. What is God choosing you for. When you think about your story, God's telling a story. You have a story. What is God choosing you for? And does your life reflect the integrity of your calling? Although Joseph's initial reaction was to break the engagement, the appropriate thing for a righteous man to do, he treated Mary with extreme kindness. He didn't want to cause her further shame, so he decided to act quietly. But God sent an angel to Joseph to verify Mary's story and to reassure him that her marriage to, well, it was God's will. So Joseph willingly obeyed God in spite of public humiliation he's going to face. And perhaps this noble quality is what made God's choice for him as Jesus' earthly father. The Bible doesn't reveal a whole lot of details about Joseph's role. We do see that he is known as a carpenter. That word actually could be translated craftsman. Probably should be translated that way. There's not a lot of wood to build with in the area around Nazareth. He's probably an expert as a stonemason. There's this archaeological dig that's just a few miles from Nazareth. It's called Sephoris. I was there a few years ago, and I snapped this photograph. This is of some of the ruins that have been recently dug up at Sephoris. Sephoris is about, get this, six kilometers from Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, Joseph's home. Some of you are doing the math in your head right now. Six kilometers. Okay, let's see. 3.1 miles right to a 5K. How many miles would that? I'll do the math for you. It's about 3.7 miles. It's about an hour's walk in the first century. Joseph's commute as a craftsman, a stonemason, about an hour would get him to the hot, moving, bustling part of his industry in that day. I think you could make a great argument that it's possible some of the stones you're looking at right there, Joseph himself might have been a part of dressing and fitting and shaping those stones that become the walls to the first century city of Sephoris. It was being built up during that era. I snapped some other photos. Check this one out. It was a Roman city 
This is the Roman Cardo. Every Roman city in the first century and in the centuries surrounding that were built after a Roman military camp that had a Cardo that runs north and south, the main thoroughfare through town. And this city would have been a world-class city. It would have had access to all of the art and the literature of the world of the day. Here's another picture. Look at that beautiful mosaic that has been recently uncovered. Actually, there's a space in Sephoris that they uncovered a spot, uh, a beautiful mosaic tile that they call the Mona Lisa of the Galilee. Jesus likely saw that stuff was exposed to those things. Jesus did not begin his earthly ministry until he was 30 years old. And until that time, he supported Mary and his younger brothers and his sisters with the carpentry trade that Joseph had taught him. In addition to love and to guidance, Joseph equipped Jesus with a worthwhile occupation so he could make his way in a hard land. Joseph had a whole bunch of accomplishments. Joseph had a a whole bunch of strengths. He was a man of strong conviction who lived out his beliefs and lived out his actions. He's described in the Bible as a righteous man. Even when personally wronged, he had the quality of being sensitive to someone else's shame. He responded to God in obedience, and he practiced self-control. Joseph is a wonderful biblical example of integrity and godly character. All kinds of life lessons he could have imparted to Jesus. And God honored Joseph's integrity by entrusting him with a great responsibility. Hear me, it's not easy to entrust your children to somebody else. Imagine God looking down to choose a man to raise his own son. Joseph had God's trust. And mercy always triumphs. Joseph could have acted severely toward Mary's apparent indiscretion, but he chose instead to offer love and mercy even though he thought he had been wronged. His family tree, we looked at the legacy. We looked at where Joseph came from in Matthew chapter 1. Let's look at the legacy he leaves behind. Not only his wife, Mary, Jesus, we know about Jesus. There's another uh, son, Joseph, another one, Judas, another one, Simon, and a whole bunch of daughters that are not named in Scripture. They had a name, but we just don't know what their names were. And then James, James, the brother of Jesus, which for my money, If you're looking for evidence of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, look at James. I've got two brothers. I love my brothers, but I wouldn't lie for them. If they did something crazy like claiming to be the son of God, I would not carry that secret to my grave. I wouldn't die for that lie. James was killed because of his faith that Jesus was who Jesus said he was. Jesus wasn't just the baby in the manger. Don't leave him there this Christmas season. He grows up to be the savior of the world, dies on a cruel Roman cross, and James becomes a leader in the early church. He is stoned to death right around AD 62, maybe as late as AD 69. That's not the point. The point is this. He dies because he deeply believes what Jesus has said he did is true. Can you imagine raising a son of that level of character? Jesus and James. If you're taking notes, write this down. Joseph was Jesus' masculine role model. Besides taking care of him, oh my goodness, he modeled what it means to be a man to Jesus. 
I read an article this past week. If you're joining us online, we'll put a link to this article, and you can look it up for yourself. But this article basically said, I want my sons to act like men. And when I read this, I thought about Joseph, and I thought about how he'd invested in these young men. If you're a man, if you're a dad, if you're a grandpa, you might want to think about some of these principles. I want my sons to act like men. Number one, I want them to grow up to be true men of God, first in, last out, laughing the loudest. Anybody else read the Chronicles of Narnia as a kid? One of my favorite series. That's actually pulled straight from a character in the book, The Horse and His Boy. This is King Loon of Archenland, and he says these words, for this is what it means to be a king, to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land to wear finer clothes and to laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. I think about Jesus and how he modeled masculinity. I think that too many men think that male headship means making demands, getting their way, and riding around on a high horse. But godly leadership doesn't give us the right to lord our authority over others. Jesus actually said of himself, he said, the son of man, that's his description of himself in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, came not to be served but to serve. And then the back half of that verse, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus models masculinity. Skip ahead to number two. I want my sons to embrace their calling as protectors of the weak. And I just wonder how much of this that Jesus embodies is Joseph's legacy living through him. Jesus treated women. He treated children with incredible dignity. He protected the weak. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, he said, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus is looking out for the innocent. He's a protector of the weak. Number three, I would wish of my sons to gladly submit to lawful authority. Jesus says in the model prayer, my Father in heaven, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. A prerequisite for being authority is recognizing that you're actually under authority. Paul talks about this in Colossians chapter 4. He says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. You're under authority. I would also wish of my sons, number four, to practice self-control for the joy of it. Men are like pickup trucks. We can get a little squirrely when we're not carrying a load, right? Right? Paul singles out self-control as one of the fundamental callings of old men and young men alike. He talks about old men in Titus chapter 2, verse 2. In verse 6, look what he says. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. This quote from G.K. Chesterton. I love this. By the way, he's he's a handsome man, isn't he? He says, the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. Listen, God erects walls around a city so that life can happen inside. God establishes boundaries so that joy can be unleashed. And a godly man respects and delights in the fences built by God. You can get wild and crazy maybe even inside those boundaries. 
Celebrate your freedom inside those boundaries, but masculinity is about taking responsible for the physical and emotional and spiritual safety of those in our care. And I wonder if Joseph, I wonder if he imparted some of that to Jesus. Number five, I'd want my sons to celebrate the wonders of femininity. Jesus does. He takes care of women, especially women in distress. Think about the woman at the well. Think about Mary Magdalene and how Jesus cares for her. Number six, I would wish upon my sons to put to death any vestige of false masculinity. If you read the story that God's been telling since the dawn of time, go back to the Garden of Eden, you see our spiritual forefather, literal forefather, Adam. He abdicates his responsibility. He abdicates his role. He says, look at the woman. She did it. She made me do it. Passivity, idolatry, abuse. I want my sons to put to death any vestige of false masculinity like that. And to number seven, to see Jesus Christ as the foundation and the goal of their masculinity. He is. And I suspect Joseph had a hand in reinforcing that in the young boy Jesus. Okay. A cute trope. A present. It's Christmas after all. But I want to leave you today with a challenge. If you're taking notes, write this down. History should be leveraged. His story, God's story should be leveraged. Remember, we've got God's story. Let's hit the next slide. And it intersects with your story. And then there's an intersection with their story. Dads, grandpas, in the spirit of Joseph. This right here. This is the sweet spot to leave a legacy behind. In the spirit of Joseph, dads, I want to share with you a list of things. There's 22 of them. You're not going to do all these. But maybe one or two or three or four of these is going to impact you as I read these. I would encourage you just to jot that down. And then to put it into action as you think about the legacy you're leaving behind. A dad. During the Christmas season, a dad in the spirit of Joseph needs a plan. A plan for the holidays to ensure his family is loved and that memories are made. Dads, what's your plan? A dad needs, number two, to ensure his family is giving generously during the holidays. Dad, who in need is your family going to adopt or bless or serve this Christmas season? Again, if one or two of these jumps out, you jot it down and you think about an action step that God would lay on your heart. Here you go. A dad, number three, needs to carve out time for sacred events and experiences, to build family traditions that are fun and point to Jesus. Dad, is your calendar ready for December? Number four, a dad needs to not let the stress of the holidays, including money, cause him to be grumpy with mom or the kids. Dads, how's your joy? That's one I need to take note of. Number five, a dad needs to make memories and not just give gifts. Dad, what special memories can you make this holiday season? Number six, dad needs to manage the extended family and the friends during the holidays. Dad, who or what do you need to say no to this Christmas season? Number seven, a dad needs to schedule a big Christmas date with his daughters. If you have them, dads, what's your big plan for the fancy daddy-daughter date? Number eight, needs to schedule guy time with his sons. Dads, what are you and your sons going to do that is active and outdoors maybe and fun? Number nine. Gulp, to help get the house decorated. 
Dad, are you really a big help to mom in getting these things ready? This is one I need to take note of. Number 10, to ensure that there are some holiday smells and sounds. Dad, is the Christmas music on the iPod? Is the, kid, is the tree up? Do you smell cookies and ciders in the air? Number 11, a dad needs to snuggle up and watch fun shows with the kids. Dad, is the DVR set to record old classics and holiday shows? Number 12, a dad needs to reconnect and connect with mom during the holidays. Dad, do you have some fun date nights or holidays or getaways planned for you and your wife? Number 13, to help mom get the kids' room decorated if you do that in your house. Dad, do they get a light or so a small tree in the room, and are you engaged? Are you a part of this? Number 14, a dad needs to read about Jesus with and pray over his kids. Dad, how's your pastoral work going with each of your kids? Number 15, to repent. A dad needs to repent of being lazy and selfish and grumpy or just dumping the holidays on mom. Dad, are you a servant like Jesus to your family? Number 16, a dad needs to help his kids learn to be generous and give. Dad, whom do your kids want to buy presents for outside of your family? Are you making it happen? Number 17, a dad needs to check the local guides for what's going to make fun holiday plans for the family. Number 18, a dad needs to not let technology eat away family time during Christmas break. Dad, will you make sure that the electronics are turned off some so your family can interact and play games and talk? Number 19, a dad needs to take the lead in family devotions centered on the birth of Jesus. Dad, have you picked out parts of the Bible to read together over dinner during this season? Number 20, a dad needs to take the family on a drive to see Christmas lights while listening to music and sipping cider. Again, all of these might not be for you, but maybe one is, two of them, maybe three of them. Dad, is that mapped out? Number 21, a dad needs to study the incarnation of Jesus Christ to help prepare him and his family for the holidays. Dad, do you have some reading lined up? Number 22, a dad needs to take a break over the holidays. Dad, it's not a sin to watch some football. It's not a sin to nap or to relax a bit so long as you've taken care of your other priorities first. Because your story has significance. You're seeking to leave a legacy behind you. Might I suggest to you that Joseph's legacy, the only reason really we know about Joseph is because of Jesus. Joseph's legacy is Jesus. Might I suggest to you, your legacy is also Jesus. Let's go back to that Venn diagram. God's been telling a story since the dawn of time. You have a story to tell it's being told through you. Your kids, the generations you leave behind, they have a story as well. That sweet spot, that's where you leave a legacy. Not just your physical kids. You have a spiritual legacy as well. Church family, might I suggest to you, leave a challenge. Here's the challenge. Leave a legacy behind you, not just in your own kids and your kids' kids and your kids' kids' kids, but you want to have spiritual grandkids as well. So this week, as you are doing the Christmas thing, as you see the folks busy shopping in the stores, who, who are you investing in? Who are you inviting to roll up their sleeves and let their story interact with your story to engage with the larger story that God has been telling since the dawn of time, the greatest story ever told. Would you stand up with me right now?
we're going to just continue in worship. To prepare our hearts and our minds for that right now, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be reminded of your story that you're telling. Our story that you want to tell in us, through us. So that we can leave a legacy in their story. As we cement these thoughts in our brain right now, as we respond with worship, Lord, receive this as an act. Worship before you are God. And it's your name in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.